Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. This month, Australian author and presenter Dr. Carl gives a whirlwind tour of some incredible facts and questions, like who put a nuclear reactor in Africa two billion years ago, and is there life on a moon of Saturn? Hello! Hello, everybody! I'm, I'm not worthy here. Look, uh, it gives me great pleasure to be here. I'm very honoured to be here at the Royal Institution. I feel as though I'm among friends. Just a little bit of an intro for those who do not know where I come from and all that sort of stuff. I come from a land down under, of course. Um, but uh, I've had 28 years of education coming from a time when we saw education as an investment in the future rather than as a way to make some short-term money via applying the laws of economics and supply and demand. And so I started off in baby jail and worked my way through into high school and then a bachelor's degree in maths and physics and then biomedical engineering and then medicine and surgery and then several non-degree years of study in computer science, astrophysics and philosophy, which adds up to about 28 years. And in between, I've been a car mechanic and a roadie for Bo Diddley. Anybody heard of Bo Diddley? Yes, and TV weatherman and a labourer and doctor in a kid's hospital and all sorts of stuff. And uh, when I was at high school, obviously you can pick who I am. I'm that um, one who has an obvious career as a model, very tall and handsome. No, I'm the little tiny one down the front. (laughs) To make up for being really short, I also had an impeccable dress sense, wearing curiously high pants... Which might be why that lady is leading away from me. I should have worn the socks and sandals that day. And then I became a milkshake uh, philosopher and tried to invent the whole thing of being a hipster. Didn't quite get there. Went through a Jesus phase. Went up to New Guinea for a while. Um, Then I became a flower-munching hippie and a filmmaker in New Guinea. And this is the anti-gravity machine I spent three years of my life on. So I worked as a taxi driver and got $5,000, which was a lot of money back then. And my friend Craig, he got $5,000 and we had a tame millionaire. But that's a story for another time. And then I found that my ears had mutated and then I ended up going into biomedical engineering where I designed and built a machine to pick up electrical signals off the human retina. And the specific disease we were looking at is retinitis pigmentosa. 450 people, so one in six or one in seven of you carry the gene for retinitis pigmentosa. And with genetics, I'm confident that we'll be able to snip those genes such as that and cystic fibrosis out of the DNA. That's another story. And then Uh, Thanks to somehow the American government decided that I was a distinguished international foreign visitor and so I got to go into the front seat of the SR-71 Blackbird twice. (laughs) Knew that would make you jealous. And then, and then, and then, even worse, a few weeks ago, just before I came here, I got to fly down to an Antarctica in an aeroplane with a hole in the side. (laughs) Four metre by three metre hole. This plane... It really did have a hole in the side. And there's the hole in the side. And inside that cavity, which opens, the doors split, they go up and down, is a 100-inch telescope. In the old money, or two and a half metres, as we call it now, it's an infrared telescope. And when you think about it, it is not trivial to make a telescope which has a 100-inch mirror. Like, it's not 100 inches long, it's a cross. 
And the whole telescope, you try to build a 100-inch mirror telescope, and this one was the biggest such telescope in the world for three decades. This is a major undertaking. You've got to be able to aim it in various directions, keep it rock solid, swivel around through the night, all sorts of stuff. This is not a trivial pursuit, and yet they managed to make one of these and stuff it into a 747. So they started off small with um, a little 12-inch mirror and then worked their way up to a one-metre one in the middle one up there and then finally up to the two-and-a-half-metre one. And there you see the plane that uh, I was actually on that plane flying down towards Antarctica when Comet Shoemaker-Levi smashed into Jupiter and created a series of little scars on the face of Jupiter, each little scar the size of planet Earth half a dozen of them, a dozen of them. And I was on the plane we were doing that, flying down in that infrared thing. So they wanted to move up to a bigger telescope. So they got themselves out of the boneyard in Arizona. They've got themselves a short, stubby 747 with big fuel tanks and a short body and then managed to shove a 100-inch telescope in there, which they did by bending it. The way to think about it is to think of a barbell. You know, you go to the gym and you do the pumping iron, you know, the biceps thing. Now, look, I'm very happy if you walk and I don't mind if you jiggle. And if you had to go out and come back, it's perfectly fine because I've been there too. Um, I'm hoping my voice is soft but you, you're most welcome. Be comfortable. Uh, so, um, so it's a barbell. Just think of it as a barbell. And on one end of the barbell is the 100-inch mirror. And on the other end of the barbell is where you, you pick up the light and you analyse it. And in between is the wall. So just go back. That's the wall. On the far side of that wall is the air at 45,000 feet, 100 degrees below zero, wind at 800 kilometres per hour. Now, just think what a cyclone can do. And you see it on TV. And it comes through your, some poor area, some anywhere, and at 200 kilometres per hour, a cyclone just rips building to pieces. Here they are opening doors at 850 kilometres per hour, once they get to altitude, they then open the doors. And they've done, done their design so beautifully, so elegantly, that the doors don't rip off, which is always good. So over here, so that's, that's that big wall there. On this side, you've got 45,000 feet, cold, big wind. On this side, you've got the so-called shirt sleeve environment. And that's where the telescope, the business end is, where you actually have the instruments. Here I am. This is called the buddy shot in the trade, by the way, the buddy shot proving I was there. And this is the instrument they had. They can clock on, clock on many different instruments. And this one I found particularly interesting because of the movie Alien. And in the movie Alien, the uh, artificial intelligence in the ship is called Mother. And this one is also called Mother. Is there a relationship? I don't know. And then over here, around the outside, you have a whole bunch of rubber stoppers and wheels. And in fact, there's five separate levels of insulation. And so when you're on the plane, that rope is fixed. Now, see how that's sort of jiggling around? It's not jiggling around. It's going dead steady. I was jiggling around. The whole plane was shaking up and down and it was just flying through the sky, dead flat, being able to take nice images. This is the German engineer who was in charge of the telescope. And on the side of the telescope, you can see we don't have a lot of insulation, so it's pretty cold on the plane. So you have the telescope, the door open, the information comes into the telescope... 
flows to the instrument and then it goes into the control paddle. So there's some people up here who are in charge of aiming the telescope, making sure it's pointing in the right direction. Other people are making sure that the data is coming in. Other people, the scientists, are over here looking at the data saying, yes, I am confident we are pointing at the right target. Over here you have mission control and there's two people in charge of the plane, the captain and mission control. This is the actual plane itself from the ground. Um, and notice in here that I am sitting holding something there, that little thing there, but above me, immediately above me, is this, right? It's not particularly you know, designed for human comfort. Basically, it's a working plane, and it's got a crew of about 20 and a few guests, such as myself. And this bag that I'm carrying is what will keep me alive if there is an emergency shot down with air. Now, I'm sure you've seen a thing that happens on the aeroplane when they say, in the event of loss of air... Uh, or decompression, you, a mask will drop down. You've seen that thing, you know, the mask will drop down and then the mask drops down and says, oh, and by the way, if you're travelling with somebody, give them the mask first and everything looks fine. I've actually been in the uh, decompression chamber and the first thing that happens is a really loud noise. Bang! And you think, oh my God, what happened? Then... You can't see anything because the water vapour just condenses and there's a cloud and you can't see your hand in the face and then in front of your face... And then there's a big hole on the side of the aeroplane and all the air is rushing that way. And the mask, instead of just sort of hanging gently on a string with the light sort of going whoop, sideways, and you've got about four seconds before you go unconscious. So perhaps they haven't quite told you the whole truth of that. So I had to walk... <laughs> I had to walk around with that thing around my neck for the whole 12-hour flight and I had a go at putting it on and here I am, doing it look attractive. <laughs> that is the cylinder of oxygen which gives me 10 minutes of air and this is special plastic that is fireproof um, and I was lucky enough actually to get inside the cockpit when we took off and this is ancient, ancient 1970s technology none of this glass technology these are all big switches and things up there they've got a little bit of glass there and over on the side you've got the uh, navigator as well and so we go onto the runway and we take off and we fly up into the sky and then suddenly I notice they're all looking out the window at the best aurora I ever saw in my whole life. I've been so lucky. And then um, I said, what's this thing up here? And as you said, tell me about it. And it turns out that directly above my head was the escape hatch. Because if there's a fire in the bottom end of the plane, the bottom half, the fire will come up the stairwell. How do we get out? Well, we rotate the hatch that way. And over here, you can see these guys here. There's five of these rods um, each sort of so big. And what you're supposed to do is climb on the back of the chair, undo the hatch, and then grab a rod, uh, and it's connected to a string. And then you uh, jump out of the top of the plane and you slide down all the way. Uh, luckily, we didn't have to do that. So the plane took off, and this is a 12-hour flight. The plane took off. And then we started off in New Zealand, headed down towards Antarctica, so we're doing a calibration run here. Chuck a lefty, uh, and then head up that away, chuck a righty back here. So 90 minutes we're looking at something, 65 minutes we're looking at something else, go along here looking at something else, looking at something else, that's the centre of the galaxy there. And as we go through the turn, you can see that the whole telescope shifts. So what the telescope can do, it can shift up and down, but it can't shift left and right. How do you aim the telescope left and right? By the expert flying skills of this woman here.
who used to fly the Dragon Lady. Now, this is the U-2 aeroplane. Been flying since the 1950s, 70,000 feet. Um, and the difference in speed between maximum, when it's flying at altitude, and falling out of the sky is 14 knots. It's a very narrow window. And the main thing is you've got to keep it flying and also keep it flying in a straight line so that all of the instruments that are loaded on, the spy instruments for that particular flight, have got the ability to do stereo photographs. So you're flying in a dead straight line. Click, click, click. And if you're off a little bit left and right, doesn't work. You've got to be able to fly dead straight. So that's the sort of training that she had where the sky is black and the earth is curved. It's not flat, I'm sorry, they lied to you about that. And so she was the one who sat there and on each individual leg. So one person would do it and here's we do the calibration on the uh, moon Callisto and then the other one took over for 90 minutes and for 90 minutes they've just got one job which is to fly the plane exactly straight. Not left, not right, for 90 minutes. No distraction, just do your job. And then after 90 minutes, it's, oh my God, next person take over. And so we saw this thing and we saw stars being born in a nearby galaxy, in these star-forming areas. In our galaxy, the, uh, the Milky Way, there's about six or seven hundred areas where stars are being born. And overall, in our galaxy, the Milky Way, there's about one star being born every year in these stellar nurseries. Here, there's a thousand stars being born. And we saw stuff falling into the big black hole at the centre of our galaxy, the big black hole that weighs four million times the mass of the sun. We photographed it falling in, and we photographed the rings around Uranus. Uh, the individual photos that come in, you just make sure you're pointing the right way. Then you have to get all the information and deconvolute it and do mathematics. And after a couple of months, you end up with these great pictures here. Supernova and other supernova remnants and that sort of stuff. Luckily, luckily, I wasn't worried. This jet had a hole in the side and I was quietly confident that we would be safe, even in this jet, even if this jet went over the Bermuda Triangle. You know the story, the Bermuda Triangle, and this is the plane involved. And there they are flying again. And here's some more of them flying triumphantly over Mount Fuji. And the Bermuda Triangle runs across here from, of course, Bermuda down to here and across to there. And you know the story how planes fly in there and they never come back. And they just vanish without trace. The story goes back to the end of the Second World War in 1945 on the uh, 5th of December where a bunch of planes took off the dreaded Flight 19. Five Avenger torpedo bombers. So they were planes that could take off from aircraft carriers. They could carry torpedoes, they could carry bombs, they were big heavy things. And piloted by, and let me emphasise, experienced aviators in fine weather suddenly got lost. Increasingly, the radio communications showed they were getting more disoriented and confused. They had no idea what was going on. And they had their last radio transmission at 7.04pm on that day. A little bit later, a Martin Mariner rescue plane, which could stay in the air for 24 hours, it took off on a search and rescue. And each two vanished without a trace. They all vanished without a trace. Except, of course, for a brief uh, cameo appearance in the movie Close Encounters of the Third Time. <laughs> but apart from that, they all vanished without a trace. Nobody really cared much about it until the science fiction journal Argosy wrote about it, Vincent Gaddis, in 1964. 
And then later, Charles Belitz wrote about it in his book, The Bermuda Triangle. And I have bought, bought this book. I have read the book from cover to cover. Here is the book. And you can see in the top, there's a ship, an aeroplane that's half white and half black. Okay, that's art. And down here, oh my God, a ring thing and, 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 and ships and planes on the floor. It must be true. Well, I have read this book. And if this guy says it was black, it was blue. If it was white, it was red. He, 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 this guy could not lie straight in bed, right? So this Bermuda Triangle. Now, come on, give me a break. Firstly, that area, that part of the world has got many hurricanes coming through. You heard of Katrina and all the other ones coming through. Secondly, it's a really deep part of the oceans, nine kilometres deep. And so if something goes down, it stays down. It's also incredibly heavily travelled by ships and by planes. And according to Lloyds of London... It has the same number of planes and ships lost per square kilometre as anywhere in, in the world for the same amount of traffic, some years up, some years down, but it sort of averages out all the same. So you do not get more losses of ships and planes there than anywhere else in the world. And then if you go into it deeper, you find out that really the story falls to pieces. They were not experienced aviators. It was just after the end of the Second World War and all of the military were being demobilised and being shoved out into civilian life and the government, the Navy, to its credit, was just trying to give the people a trade. Hey, uh, learn how to fly an aeroplane. They were not experienced aviators. There was only one person out of the entire five planes who was an experienced aviator, Lieutenant Charles Taylor, who had been lost and had to be rescued from being lost and ditching in the ocean, not once, not twice, <laughs> but three times. And already had turned up drunk and had tried to give his shift away to somebody else. And nobody would take it because he was unliked by the other people. And the weather was perfectly fine, apart from a small hurricane and five metre waves. But apart from that, the weather was perfectly fine. And the Martin Mariner plane that vanished without a trace was seen by the crew of two ships to take off, go putt, 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 and a few hundred metres up, explode in a ball of fire. These things were built during the Second World War when life was cheap, when the odds were great, and when close enough was good enough. They were not well made. They were basically a flying petrol tank for our British people and gasoline tank for our Americans. Yes. And so they were basically a flying fuel tank. They could stay up there for 24 hours and they weren't built perfectly and a lot of them leaked and the crew and captain of that plane had already been reprimanded for smoking on the plane. <laughs> they probably were smoking again. But in all of this that I'm trying to tell you to debunk it, there is one common factor that the scientists with their punsy PhDs and their lab coats cannot deny. Charles Berlitz was 100% correct when he said that that shape with three sides <laughs> is a triangle. And nobody has ever proved him incorrect. I rest my case. But when you're travelling in the planes, you know, you get tired being stuck in a tube is naughty. So you get exhausted. So what you need is the most popular legal drug on our planet. And I'm talking here about coffee. Now, coffee has a wonderfully simple chemical formula. There's a bit of it in the middle, which has got a lot of nitrogen and carbons and hydrogens and stuff. Don't worry about them. That's called a xanthine. Forget about the xanthine. But notice over here... You've got a thing called a methyl, CH3, you know, the CH4, CH3, you burn it. 
There's another one. So there are the positions one, three and seven as you go around clockwise. So that chemical called caffeine is called properly 1,3,7-trimethyl because there's three of them. One, two, three. Xanthine because that's the thing in the middle. And um, it is a vasoconstrictor. It closes your blood vessels. There is another chemical, a beautiful chemical in this food here, the Prince of Foods, which we are trying currently to get as one of the six approved food groups. Chocolate. And the chemical in there that is the chemical of goodness is called theobromine. Theo, as in theology, God, bromine, drink. Drink of the gods. Linnaeus himself gave it this name. And its formula is awfully similar. It's only having two methyls. So it's 3,7-dimethylxanthine, and it's a vasodilator. It all becomes obvious. One of them closes the blood vessels and raises your blood pressure. The other one opens them up and drops your blood pressure. Firstly, this is the answer to the problem that the philosophers have screwed their nuts over for thousands of years. Yes, number one, this proves that God exists. And number two... That if she exists, she wants you to have chocolate whenever you have coffee. <laughs> I'm hearing you, sister. I will now demonstrate to you that should you go on a wellness kick, if you're going to give up anything, do not give up coffee. Do not. So, in the studies... It improves your life expectancy. Improves the outcome if you have liver disease. Type 2 diabetes, there are so many people with type 2 diabetes that if they were a nation unto themselves, they'd be the third largest nation on earth. Improves prostate of the cancer and just a little bit of a downer here. Every male in the audience, sorry, if you get to about 50 or 60, you'll have prostate cancer. I have prostate cancer. Everybody will have prostate cancer. The thing is this, it won't kill you. You'll die of something else. Just, just sort of letting you know, just cheering you up. Yeah. In case you're too happy, also improves your outcomes with heart disease, various other cancers. But these studies are all entirely observational studies, such as the American Nurses Study, where you get a third of a million nurses and you follow them for a third of a century. And out of it bubbles, you know, you're looking, you say, oh, if they have coffee, they live longer. If they ride a bicycle, they live longer, all that sort of stuff. What you need are proper, randomised, double controlled studies, you know, double blind studies. There have been no such studies with coffee. They should be coming out, but they're not at the moment. They should. But the point is that what we need are those sort of studies. You know the sort of stuff I mean, like they appear in magazines like Nature Medicine. And so here's a typical such study, which is, you know, controlled and blinded and all that sort of stuff, with the title of A Chronic Low Dose of Delta 9 Tetrahydrocannabinol. I see somebody knows what I'm talking about here. Restores cognitive function in old mice. <laughs> in plain English... Um, Daily dose of cannabis could reverse brain's decline. A little cannabis every day might keep brain ageing at bay. It may boost rather than dull the elderly brain. Well, let's just have a look. It improves your memory in older mice. Let's just go into this in a little bit more depth. Okay, so what they did, the scientists, was get a bunch of mice of different ages. Young, mature and older. Two months, 12 months, 18 months. Implanted a pump into the gut 
And this pump would dribble out every day for a month, either a placebo, salt water, or three milligrams per kilogram of body weight of cannabis per day. And they did it for a month. And look what happened to them after a month and then after that. Now, as you get older, things begin to decay. Your memory decays, your resilience decays, your ability to learn decays. And they gave the mice various tests to test this. So they would say, for example, there'd be a water bath, and just underneath the surface of the water would be tracks that they couldn't see because the water was black. And then the water level would come up, and they'd have to remember that they would go this way five steps and that way three steps, and there would be a place which would lift up as the water level rose. A whole bunch of tests like that. And what they found was the mice who had the cannabis, the older mice who had the cannabis, they had the memory and learning of the younger mice. The younger mice were just off their faces. We'll get to that in a little while. <laughs> but this raises a big question. Like, I mean, cannabis is made of plant and I am made of meat. Why would a plant work on meat because of a happy coincidence. So consider in Turkey, we had a plant, the opium poppy, and this pure little plant like this, um, it gave us opiates, which work on humans. How come? We found out beginning in the 80s that the human body has its own endorphin system. And what's an endorphin? A chemical that's basically an opiate. So opiates work because we use opiates anyway to run our bodies normally. And so if you've got terrible pain, it can make it go away. So opiates can relieve pain. And it turns out that more recently we have discovered that while cannabis sativar does make cannabinoids, that we humans make and use our own natural cannabinoids for all sorts of purposes. This is truly, truly deep. Now, up here at the top, it's got inflammatory response. That's just two words. If you study physiology or medicine, you'll spend about a week and a half understanding the inflammatory response, and at the end of it, you'll say, oh, my God, I had no idea, and there's so much more. And they're involved with growing new nerve cells, phosphorylation, where you get your energy from, um, ATP, and nervous system development and programmed cell death, which is important. So the way you start get a hand is you start off with a flipper, and then you have programmed cell death one, two, three, four times, and suddenly the flipper turns into four fingers. And some of these things make things go faster, some of them slow them down, and sometimes they reverse depending on the concentration. It is truly, truly complex. And so they looked at these mice afterwards. You know, so we know that this endocannabinoid system is really thoroughly enmeshed in our daily survival. And so with the mice, they looked at them at the end of the study, when they, the technical term is sacrificed them, and they looked at their nerve endings and found that what you should find wasn't there. Normally, the nerve endings, the synapses, where one nerve kisses another nerve, normally they're degraded in number, the quality of the connections and how many connections they have going out. Uh-uh. The old mice suddenly were looking identical. The old mice were looking identical to younger mice. And in the DNA, the DNA itself, forget the nerves, the DNA. DNA has got genes. Genes make proteins. Your ability to make proteins drops with age. Identical to the young mice. The old mice were getting back to be identical to the young mice again. Now, with the endocannabinoid system in humans, what happens is you get born, and from being born to puberty, nothing much happens. Hit puberty till about the early mid-20s, bingo, 
your endocannabinoid system takes off like crazy. And if you add any more uh, cannabinoids, you can go sometimes a bit off the rails. And then once you get to be a boring adult and go to sleep at 8 o'clock at night, um, sometimes I can stay up that late, um, then uh, it drops way down. And so the endocannabinoid system drops down with time. And the thinking is, based on this study, that low-dose cannabis will will rejuvenate it. Big disclaimers. Number one, sure, there were some good effects in the older mice, but it was really variable. Some mice really got terrific, the older mice, and some of them did nothing for them. Secondly, mice are not humans. I know this is hard to believe, (laughs) especially if you read the Daily Mail, but what what works on mice doesn't work on humans. As one example, just one example, okay, with regard to Alzheimer's disease in mice. They get it, right? We've found 1,000 treatments that work really well in mice. And when we try them on humans, 997 do not work, and three of them might work or might not work. So going from mice to humans, a whole different thing. Number three, Paracelsus, half a thousand years ago, got it right when he said all drugs are poisons, what matters is the dose. And certainly we know that... A little bit can be good and too much can be bad. And number four, the human brain, as I mentioned, matures in the 20s. And so if the younger people are taking it before their brain is fully cooked, then they can end up with an increased risk of schizophrenia if they have a tendency that way. You've got the box set up for everybody's stash at the door on their way. Yeah, okay, right, okay, we worry about that. And, and the thing about, another thing that it does is it makes you forget stuff. You know, the cannabis makes you forget stuff. Like the, I mean, you've all, I want to have that thing where you walk out the front door and you think, oh my God, where did I park the car, bicycle or the Rolls Royce as I normally am accustomed to travelling in? Or you go to the kitchen to get a drink and you walk in the kitchen and you go, ah, why am I in the kitchen? And then you return with your glass of water and you see, what was I doing before I went? This is not a sign of dangerously low blood levels of cannabis or of early onset dementia. This is normal. The problem is the evil doorway. It is the barrier. Why? Because first, you've got to realise this at an early age, the universe is a dangerous place. Everything is trying to kill you, especially in Australia. That's why we're so tough, but I won't even talk about that. And secondly, the universe is big. And so there are threats coming at you from all directions. And you've got to block things out. You've got to simplify things out. And so I came across this via a press release called Walking Through Doorways Causes Forgetting. <laughs> this, this was a really inventive press release because they totally changed it from the name of the paper which was called Walking Through Doorways Causes Forgetting. Maybe they forgot what they were doing. And so what they did in this paper was get people to go from room to room carrying stuff and then trying to remember what they carried. So that's a room there. That's a doorway. That's a doorway. Uh, that's a doorway, that's a doorway, 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 doorway. And over here, wherever the X is, there was a testing station where you would go there and pick up an item and then put it into the backpack and suddenly you could no longer see what you had just picked up. And it wasn't just an item. 
they came with 10 different colours and 6 different shapes. So you had 60 options of things that you could pick up. So you might pick up the yellow cube and think, what, what, what do I just pick up? And then you would take it from one table to the other table. Sometimes in the same room, sometimes in a different room. If you went through a doorway into a different room, you forgot. <laughs> Pick it up here, stay in the same room. Remember, no worries. Don't forget. Pick it up here, go into there. Forget. Bummer. Maybe it's because you didn't like the new room. Okay. So pick it up here, go for a walk, through a door, through a door, through a door, back into the same room. Still forget. <laughs> Just pick it up, stay in the same room, don't forget. What's going on? Why does the doorway wipe out the memory? Well, we've got this long history of the world being against us, starting off with big rocks from outer space, and then the dinosaurs, if you follow Scientology, and so forth and so forth. And then it's hard to survive in the world. There's everything out to get you. We have been the top dog on the planet for such a short time. And so going back to 200,000 years ago for, as Homo sapiens, or the latest I read on the weekend was 350,000 years. Homo sapiens sapiens, people like you and me are pretty well identical to us. You would be living in Africa. If you happened to be in the jungle, if that was your area, the big threat was the gorilla. So all the time. As you were travelling in the jungle, it would be sort of, okay, ready, looking, 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 all the way around. And as soon as you left the jungle and walked onto the open savannah, your next duty was to forget about the gorilla and look over here. Nothing up there. Look out for the lions. And so if you kept on thinking about the gorillas, a lion might eat you. So you had to forget the killer gorilla. So the changing in the environment, changing from the jungle and going into a different environment like the savannah is... Bing. Different environment, new threats. Okay, I'm coming down to get a glass of water. Where's the killer dishwasher, the killer toaster? Already, I've got you covered, right? Okay, ready? You're covering me, right? I'm ready to go. And so what is the cure? Like open plan houses or banning doors? It's really hard. Like there are so many things in the world that try to kill us. It's, sometimes you just give up and you say, look, I'm giving up. It's too hard. I'm just going to forget everything. I'm going to forget stuff like global warming, climate change. I'm going to forget about radioactive waste because it's too hard to deal with. But I have the solution for you right here. A hole in the ground. A special hole in the ground. This hole in the ground is what remains of a nuclear reactor. Oh, yeah. A nuclear reactor that was there two billion years ago. Not two years ago, not 20 years ago, not 2,000 years ago. Two billion years ago. And if you zoom in, you, you can see a vehicle over there and you can see a sort of a parking area. And if you consider that, that vehicle could be called a backy, you know that it comes from Africa. Gabon in Africa. And you go to the pit and you dig down and you find radioactive stuff. Uranium. Okay. So solving the problem of nuclear waste by digging a hole in the ground, not that simple. And if you dig it a little bit more, then you'll find that there are different bits of uranium stuff that's there in different clumps. And over here you can see one of them. Orange in colour. So, by the way, a little diversion here. If you happen to have... Anybody have, like I have... Anybody has... Sorry about the singular plural. Uh, if it, does anybody have uh, orange um, crockery from the 1960s? 
coloured with uranium. Uh, Second World War uh, binoculars with yellow glass, coloured with uranium. Our guy counter ticks. It's okay, don't worry about it. It's very low. They're only alphas. It doesn't matter. Okay, so over there is another place where there was a two billion year old nuclear reactor. What happened in 1972 was that the French went in there mining uranium in Oklo, in Gabon, in West Africa. And what they found when they got the uranium was it was not the fuel that you put into a nuclear reactor. It was the radioactive wastes that come out of a nuclear reactor. What they were mining was the wastes of a nuclear reactor. What on earth is going on? Now, I do know that both Tom Cruise uh, and a few other people think that um, we do come, according to Scientology, from giant aliens that mutated into us 70 million years ago. But if you ignore that, if you ignore that, you're stuck with the question of how did we end up with a nuclear reactor 2 billion years ago with no humans around? And the answer is different isotopes of uranium. Let me take you through it. So there's about 92 elements. And how many of the elements were discovered by our good friends here at the Royal Institution? Ten. Ten. Isn't that amazing? And so one of them, I don't know if they discovered this one, but uranium uh, is one of these elements. Let's have a look at uranium-235. Uranium-235 is that guy. And what's going to happen is that neutron, see that neutron there, is going to go bing. And this guy is going to split into two fission products. Fancy talk for smaller elements and either two or three neutrons. Start it going, in comes a neutron, put, 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 bing! And energy given off and two neutrons. Okay, so that's your basic nuclear reaction. And by the way, the energy is enormous. One single uranium atom disintegrating gives off enough energy to make a grain of sand jump a whole centimetre. That's how much energy there is in just one atom. It's huge. So with this two billion year old uranium reactor, well, let's have a look at these isotopes. The stuff that goes bang, uranium-235, is present at only 0.7%. So if you get you know, uh, a kilogram of natural uranium, only seven grams of it is uranium-235, and the other 993 grams, or 99.3%, is uranium-238, which does not go bang. Going back to the very first nuclear reactor that we humans built in 1942, we took, no, it took Nobel Prize winners to do it, and they had to run it on 3% uranium. How can a nuclear reactor run on 0.7%? And the answer is in the half-life. Uranium-235 decays rapidly. It decays, it has a half-life of 700,000 years, and so it decays very rapidly after it's been manufactured, by the way, diversion here. The way the elements get manufactured apart from hydrogen and helium is that you have them in a star, and then you burn stuff in a star, work your way up to iron, it goes supernova, all the lighter atoms, get, a lot of atoms just sort of go smash into each other, and that's where the uranium comes from. And by the way, every atom of gold, in this ring came out of a star as it exploded and two lighter atoms got shoved together to make every atom of gold in this ring. And so the half-life of uranium-238 is much longer, not 700,000 years, not 700 million years, four and a half billion years. And so when the universe was younger, two billion years ago, there was a higher percentage of uranium-235 
about three and a half, three and three quarters percent. Today, one billion years ago, two billion years ago, 3.8 percent. Yeehaw. How do you actually make a nuclear reactor naturally? Well, you start off with a lump of land about 200 kilometres by 200 kilometres and there's some uranium there anyway. But it's really sparsely, a bit here, a bit there, a bit there. It's just all over the place. It's not concentrated in one area at all. And over hundreds of millions of years, you have the same thing happening to the uranium, which is dense, as happens to gold. It washes down into the bottom of the creeks and the rivers and sits there. We call it placer gold, placer uranium. You can pan for it if you like. And then you need something else to happen. You need the biggest ecological disaster that ever happened to our planet. The great oxygenation event when photosynthesis got invented and oxygen, that terrible corrosive gas, got shoved into the atmosphere and it gradually started climbing up. There was no oxygen before, about two billion years ago. And then, that then combined with the uranium, the uranium salts are soluble in water. And so now, instead of all the uranium being there, it's down here. Instead of being there, it gradually washes, washes down, washes down, washes down by gravity down towards the delta. And the delta is full of this organic ooze, which is low in oxygen, which immediately takes the uranium back out of the oxidised state and it all just goes clump over here. That's the mechanism over maybe a billion or so years by which you get finely dispersed uranium over some 40,000 square kilometres and concentrate it into individual sheets, a metre or so thick, maybe 50 or 100 metres long and a few metres wide. And then, of course, you have to add geology. And the river flows and the sand flows and stuff falls on top of it. And then geology kicks things up and it bends and it curves and it cracks. And water goes into it. And you can read about water moderation on a nuclear reactor. And it's all part of it. And then they start ticking along, kicking. They kick into action the concentrated uranium at not 0.07, but not 0.7%, but 3.8%. It kicks into action. And you have these nuclear reactor zones, tick, 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 ticking away. So the whole thing begins about then, three and a bit billion years ago, and about half a billion years to move it and form all bodies, and then oxygenation, bingo. And that's when it then starts to concentrate and move into one area in Gabon. In West Africa. Many separate nuclear reactors, not just one. Uh, we're up to about a dozen or more now. Running at about 100,000 watts, putting out 15 gigawatt years of energy. Typically, with the water running through acting as a moderator, look it up on Wikipedia, 30 minutes on, two and a half hours off. And what this tells us, that it is possible to store nuclear wastes underground because... The nuclear waste from those reactors was underground for two billion years. But there's a few problems. Problem number one, nuclear waste isn't full stop. It's not waste. It's got 95% of the energy in there that was there at the beginning. And what happens is we throw it away because of the design of our current nuclear reactors. It's as though you fill your car with 50 litres of fuel and then immediately say, I'm just going to pour 47 and a half on the ground and run on this five litres of fuel. So firstly, getting nuclear waste and then throwing it away 
Well, it's got 95% of the energy there. And secondly, it is truly, truly magnificently expensive. And the way you would do it to mimic what happened then was you would get yourself a hole 15 metres in diameter, like across this room, bigger than that. And then you would go down one kilometre and you are talking big, big monies. And then you go down one whole kilometre and when you're at the bottom, you put out tunnels in all directions like the spokes of a bicycle wheel going out a kilometre. Big, big money. And then you put your radioactive non-waste, you're throwing it away, but go ahead, and you put it in the tunnels and then you backfill with concrete, come up 10 metres, repeat, 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 until you get half a kilometre from ground level and then fill it up with a plug of concrete, 15 metres in diameter and half a kilometre long. This is more than the gross national product of the United Kingdom for one year. But it is possible to do it. And the option they have chosen instead is to put the nuclear waste in a 44-gallon drum on the edge of a river and when it rusts, go, really? Iron rusts? Why wasn't I told? Oh, my God. Who would? Uh, this is such a big problem that we've got to go the other way. We've got to go small. Small is where the answer is. And I mean really small. I will now show you one of the smallest scientific papers in the history of humanity, of the human race. Back in 1966, there was this paper here um, in the Bulletin of the American Mathematical Society running from pages 1080 to 1087. That's eight pages long. And it was a fairly reasonable sort of paper with seven pages. And above it was this paper with one page. Just one page. In fact, it wasn't even a page. It was just like this bit here. That's all it was. And if you just ignore the actual paper itself, which fills in that gap, let's just go trying to understand what the paper was about because it's not that hard. Just follow me through. Let me take you for a walk into the land of mathematics. So the first thing is there's this word up here. Euler, or if you are a mathematician-type person, Euler. Okay, so the first step is we think about Euler. And here we are, we're dealing with a conjecture by Euler. Okay, let's just think about Euler. Not too much, let's not confuse ourselves. Let's just nibble at this problem one step at a time and we'll understand it by the end. So who is Euler? This is Euler. He worked for the Russians, the Germans, the Swiss. Oh, I love this. I really wish, I wish that somebody would come out with a shirt with this equation. And I was at the New Scientist Fair yesterday and they said, it's cost you money. Okay. And they said, 50 quid. And I thought, 50 quid? <laughs> and I went and I said, and finally we said, yes, yes, I had to have it. It turned out to be 15 quid. I couldn't understand the accent. <laughs> that's, that's how much I love this equation. That is the best equation in the history of the human race. I have met mathematicians who have that equation tattooed on themselves. And if you meet up with a mathematician, the thing to say to them is, what's your favourite equation? And nine out of time times I'll go, oh, come on, Euler's equation. Now, just look at this thing, this, this simple equation, E. Uh, that's exponential e, 2.718. That's basis of all logarithms. i is the square root of minus 1. And you think, now, come on. The square root of minus 1, that is no use. You cannot, let me disprove you, you cannot put real electricity into a real suburb with people burning that electricity to make toast and washing machines and so forth run unless you use the square root of minus 1. Kirchhoff's equations. I learned that electrical engineering. I 
even though it's impossible, is incredibly important. And pi, oh, come on. Now, where could you be without plumbing? And Without plumbing, there is no civilization. So you've got three of the fundamental constants that run our universe and our society in that equation, E, I, and pi. And then you've got the basis of algebra, which is plus and equals. And then you've got the basis of counting, which is one and zero. And zero is so important that it took some Muslim mathematicians about a thousand years ago to invent it. We couldn't do it through the Romans. In one equation, you've got all those beautiful things. Does it make you weep? Are there any mathematicians here who love that, by the way? Thank you. You are my new best friend forever. So Euler, he was not just one of the greatest mathematicians of all time, not just Probably, almost certainly, the most prolific mathematician of all time, in every field of knowledge known at the time, he was also blind. And he had to do it in his head. And scribes would write down what he was thinking. Mm, let me just start off with the identity that cos squared plus sine squared equals 1. Go into the imaginary domain and 15 minutes later I'll prove that e to the i pi plus 1 equals 0. It's obvious. Here, write this down for me. Right, he would do that sort of stuff. Times were tough back then. A lot of children, only five of them survived. He wrote this sort of stuff. Here he is, a man. And, and he had an idea. Euler had an idea, a conjecture, a guess. Now, conjecture is a fancy way of saying guess. Okay, they, it's defined in a dictionary like that or that. But he had a guess. And his guess was this. It's fairly complicated, but we're on to the second stage now. I'll take you through it. It's not that hard. At least n of nth power powers... So I needed to sum up something to the nth power. Let me put that into plain English. So if you're doing with squares, at least two squares are needed to sum up something to a square power. So three squared plus four squared equals five squared. Okay, I'm cool with that. Uh, does it work for the cubes? Do you need three cubes like A cubed plus B cubed plus C cubed? He was saying, well, I've thought about it. It's beyond me. I can't solve it. But I've got a guess. I've got a guess that that's the case for the fourth power and for the fifth power. So for the fifth power, you need one, two, three, four, five of these numbers to then equal that one to the fifth power. And so going back to our original paper, uh, it's entitled, This is a Counterexample. So they're saying, OK, so this guy, Euler, he had a guess that you needed, you know, five fifth power numbers to sum something to the fifth power and this is the counterexample and that's the counterexample. That's it. That's the whole paper. <laughs> that is the entire scientific paper. That whole thing. I think it still holds the record as the shortest scientific power ever that something to the fifth plus that. There's only four of them. One, two, three, four. That's the fifth power. They're all fifth powers, but you only need four of them. And how do they find this? By going and looking on this computer here, which turns out to be a very special computer. Now, if you look at this, you're thinking, hmm, I don't think this is quite what I'm looking for in a smartphone, unless I've got a really big trolley. Over here, you've got a panel. Now, let me just tell you about this panel. This panel is this big, right? It's that big. And inside that panel, over there, that's one transistor. And there's another one down there I've checked. There's five transistors in there. In my smartphone, in a chip smaller than my thumbnail, there are 300 million transistors. That's how far we've gone since then. This machine 
turns out to have been designed by Seymour Cray himself, the god of supercomputers, the first ever supercomputer. And they just went through and tried every second power, third power, fourth power, and finally got it. It's not quite as powerful as my computer. This computer here today has got eight processors running at 3,100 megahertz. His machine had only one. My computer here has 16 million megabits of RAM. He had 64. Not 64,000, just 64. And my machine runs at 60,000 megaflops. His runs at only three. But it could solve that problem. And the first computers... The first computers, this were used for various people like CERN and working on the web and inventing MRI. And it's evolved into the thing that you can pick up your phone and say, oh, look, they're having a holiday in Croatia. And where's that photo stored? On the cloud. What is this thing called the cloud? That thing there. The cloud is where you watch movies, you store all your relationships, your data, your health data, your book flights, everything. It's stored on the cloud. And, but each time you use the cloud, you are using not one, not two, but hundreds of hard drives and computers scattered across the entire world. If I send a text to my family saying, where you at, yo, um, that gets broken up into packets. And some of them go from here into downtown London and straight across. Some of them go to Johannesburg. Some go to Vladivostok. Some go to Sydney. And they all end up back at the same place in a very short time. What is this cloud thing? Is it a diffuse, vaporous entity? No, it's rooms full of hard drives and servers. Is this data clean? Well, you'd think so. After all, it's all just clean and green. And you're not actually shifting. Like if you're driving to work, you've got to shift your whole body into a van or a car. Or I love your subway system. One billion passenger trips per year. You go into the subway and then you're shifting your whole body there. But instead, you're just shifting these electrons, which are weightless. Surely the cloud has to be cleaner and greener. But let's go into it. If you are trying to just make a small desktop computer, it takes you a quarter of a tonne of fossil fuel and one and a half tonnes of water. If you want to watch on your smartphone a one-hour video, okay, it's only a very small phone. It's not, the battery hardly drops at all. It might go from, say, 60% to 55%. you are not using much energy, are you? Ah, but all those packets that came to you, via Vladivostok and Siberia and Tokyo and Moscow, where extra bits got added to them. And all, they, <laughs> so many computers around the world were used that for you to watch a one-hour video on your smartphone, overall to get it to you, uses more energy than it takes to run a refrigerator for a week. Man, that's a lot of energy. This is what the cloud looks like. Huge buildings. And down here it says, tanks containing coolant for servers at a Google data centre. And you see these rooms full of stuff. Optical cables, soldered things, RJ45s. Oh my God. No. It's huge nondescript buildings. To build one such building costs a billion dollars and flat out it is using 100 megawatts, 24 hours a day. They use in the USA 3% of their entire energy and you build them in places that are cold so you don't have to worry about the heating bills too much and stable both with stable geology and tectonic plates but also stable politically. 
And when they move into places, they change things big time. Right now, Netflix is using one-third of all the internet traffic it was generating in the USA. They then entered the Australian market, that's the example I know, in 2015, and within three weeks, 15% of all the net in Australia was Netflix. If the cloud was a country in terms of energy consumption, it would account for being number six in the whole world. So you think the cloud is messy, you think it's clean, it is messy. And when they, they move into a town, they take over the town and unfortunately bad things happen there. Microsoft is trying to now, they've actually done this, they're putting their cloud centres in the ocean because, hey, how could we possibly heat up the oceans or interfere with something as big as the earth? Now, in India... They've got all these mobile phone towers, which were terrific because suddenly people could get connections, but only 40% of them had reliable electricity. So to run the other ones, they had to use 2 billion litres of diesel every year, which made them the second biggest user of diesel in India after the rail, and it's over 2% of India's greenhouse emissions. We can go green, as possible. We're dealing here with the concept of a hidden externality where the people who make the electricity do not pay do not factor into it the costs, the true costs. So sure, when you burn coal to make electricity, you make electricity and carbon dioxide. Global warming is real, proved that a long time ago. And you make heavy metals as well. Think about China. China, Pacific Ocean, America. In America, they burn coal. And the coal has got mercury in it, goes into the air, falls on America. In China, they burn more coal a lot of it goes into the air, a lot of the mercury goes into the air, a lot of it falls into the ocean. So much is left that when you go to America, one third of all the mercury that falls out of the sky came from China. That's a hidden externality. Who's paying for the cost of that? Not, it's not factored in. At least 0.4 of a trillion in health costs, probably more than that. And in perspective, the world gross domestic product is about 60 trillion. So that's a big number. In uh, terms of water usage, um, the NSA is using 6,500 tonnes of water a day in a very dry part of the USA. Massive amounts of raw materials needed to run our electronics, our cloud, often gathered under slave-like conditions. And then there's e-waste, which is a big problem. So the clean cloud is not, but there is a happy ending. Last time I was here, and we've got about five minutes to go, or three minutes to go, I talked about how we could make our electricity entirely without burning anything within 10 years, all of our transport without burning anything within 15 years. Agriculture is harder because it's living, probably a quarter of a century, but we can go even better. What, you ask yourself, if we could remove carbon dioxide directly from the air? Climework says we can. That's my wind-up time. Yep, we can. Observe this. There's this thing here, which is the size of one of the big containers on a semi-trailer, or as they call them in America, an 18-wheeler, but you call them an Arctic for articulated lorry. Is that correct? Yes, correct. And there's another one, and there's that. So it would fill three semi-trailers, Arctics. And they've been running for a while and going very well. And you need a lot of them. If you want to capture 
100% of all the carbon dioxide that we humans pump into the air every year, you need 25 million plants. There is nothing stopping us from doing this technologically. It is purely political will. Who knows the answer to this question? What happened on the 7th of December 1941? Pearl Harbour. Within nine months, all the American car factories had switched over into making war materials in totally, and within two years, they were pumping out these things. Massive planes, B-17s. Crew of 10, weighing 30 tonnes, very fast, able to fly huge distances, and one single factory alone was typical. This one factory out of hundreds could pump out one of these planes, not every month, not every week, one every hour because they decided that that's what they wanted to do. We could, if we wanted to build two and a half million of these, have them running for 10 years, all we need is 289 factories. So my message there is go into politics. Either you can yell at the TV or you can be discussed there. Now I'm just going to finish right here. Because that's our natural wind-up time. And so thank you very much and we'll head on to questions. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you very much, Carl. Fantastic talk. Now, have we lost our lady here? I hope she comes back with a baby. Okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, obviously, we all know that Dr. Carl is most famous for answering questions. Uh, and often the answer is, I do not know. <laughs> um, so we've got um, some of my colleagues here with microphones. So while they're going out, I've maybe started us off. So you mentioned a bit about um, how with age comes a loss of memory. And um, considering that both of my parents are sitting here and aren't quite as useful as I am. <gasps> Nepotism runs again. <laughs> Do you, um, do you have any maybe advice for them to how to cope with their ageing and memory loss that's, that's coming with them? Um, where's that box? <laughs> I say nothing. Um, uh, as the actress said to the bishop, if you use it, you don't lose it. Uh, crosswords, activity, and you just take the bigger picture that you're born, you live, you die, and you live through your children, and you do the best you can, you live behind a better place. And you just keep it going for as long as you can. Exercise, there's no superfoods. Eat food, mostly plants, not too much. <laughs> I know, and do exercise, just like the doctors tell you, the GPs tell you. Sorry, that's all I can do there, sorry. <laughs> Very well done. <laughs> So I actually wanted to ask you, um, have you heard of thorium as an element? It can be used as a source of renewable, I mean, of nuclear power. And is it, it's, I mean, in my opinion, it's better than uranium because it doesn't create that much nuclear waste. And it also doesn't create the opportunity for nuclear weapons. So ah. is there anything that you'd like to maybe tell us about it? Um, thorium reactors um, have been built and tested on an experimental scale. So you go with firstly the idea, and then seeing if you can make one work experimentally, which is then different from the next stage, which is to make it work in a commercial scale for a short time, and then big scale commercial. All we did was just make a couple of them and prove they could work and then stopped. You see they have a big disadvantage and you get the answer from that great philosopher, Frank Zappa. Anybody heard of Frank Zappa? 
who said that if you want to be a real country, well, he, he said many things. He said, my favourite vegetable is tobacco. Uh, and he also said that politics is just the entertainment division of the military-industrial complex. So you should get into politics, kids, and change the world. But he also said that you can't be a real country unless you have nuclear weapons. It ha helps if you have a football team, but you've got to have nuclear weapons. So what does thorium have? Thorium reactor cannot go bang under the laws of physics. Number one. Number two, instead of extracting only 5% of the energy in the fuel, it extracts 30%. And number three, it's really difficult to make nuclear weapons with it. So... It creates more energy. Like, it, 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 it does produce more energy than the uranium itself. But you can't... If you have a uranium reactor, it is really easy to subvert that nuclear reactor to make nuclear weapons. If you have a thorium reactor, you do have a nuclear weapons, a nuclear metal cycle, but it's much harder. And so the main reason around the world that people haven't bothered with it is that you can't make nuclear weapons. So India and Pakistan and Israel and South Africa and North Korea all get their own peaceful nuclear reactors and look, I accidentally made a nuclear weapon. Oh, sharks. I'll only use it to power the coffee maker. So that's where we stand with thorium. It is a much better pathway, uh, but you can't use it easily to make nuclear weapons. Another question? Yep, just talk loudly. Yeah, it's on. What made you do what you wanted to do? Uh, I don't know what I want to do yet, but one day I'll find out. Um, a sense of curiosity. Um, I really want to understand everything. Has anybody been to Johannesburg? Mate, Terminal A and Terminal B just about killed me. And it was only after asking so many people that I finally managed to work out that unlike everywhere else in the world, if you go into a terminal, you buy tickets for flights leaving from that terminal but not with Terminal A and Terminal B in Johannesburg. It just killed me. So I try to understand everything I can about the world. Have a sense of curiosity and ask yourself the question, why is it this way instead of any other way? And in fact, if I can make it go the other way, will it be better? And then can I get fabulously wealthy? Go into politics and make the world a better place. <laughs> that is your call. When you were talking about the coffee, so... Do you, do you mean that we shouldn't eat coffee? We shouldn't drink coffee anymore? Yeah. <laughs> you, you come over here. So you are you are now pretending to be my wife for a second. So my wife and I are driving through New Zealand, and she says, "Carl, I'm in atrial fibrillation," and I say, "No, you're not." Drive, and she says, "Yes, I am," and I reach across. And I, f and I feel the carotid artery and I say, honey, you're in atrial fibrillation. Yes, that's what I told you. Right, okay, end of demonstration. So overwhelmingly, coffee seems to have no harmful effects or minimal harmful effects on the mature brain. There are some people who go off into atrial fibrillation and then just have smaller amounts of coffee that can cure sometimes. And there are other people who have bad effects, but in general, overwhelmingly, it does seem to be incredibly safe for the mature brain and seems to have positive effects, but only 
via observational studies. We haven't been able to just sort of tease it out and then just sort of get these people to have coffee and these people, they're identical twins, to not have coffee for 30 years and then live the exact same life. We haven't been able to do those studies. So in general, it seems that it is very safe for adults. Don't know about kids. <laughs> Sorry. Although in the... Um, Dickens and so forth, kids had, uh, in, in orphanages aged eight would have coffee so they would work harder and not eat food. So um, I don't know what that, what that means. Okay, next question. Yep, right in the middle here. Yeah, hello. Um, given that you live in Australia, I think you're the perfect person to answer this question. Um, many years ago, I was in Australia, I conducted my own experiments, but uh, I, I didn't come to any conclusion. So... If you fill a bath or a sink full of water and pull the plug, <laughs> is it true it goes one way in our hemisphere and the opposite way uh, down under? Yes and no, <laughs> if you do it carefully. So um, uh, the experiment has been done twice. Once in the 1973 or so at Harvard and one year later at the University of Sydney, which is my home. And what they did, the scientists at Harvard then at Sydney University, was get a, a big tub, about a satellite dish about four metres across but very shallow. And then filled it very slowly and carefully with water in such a way as to not induce a clockwise or anti-clockwise current. And then let it sit in an air-conditioned room with no wind currents for four days. And then dropped little tiny matches on the surface which would float so you could see what the water was doing. And then in this huge tub, so big, have only one outlet which was dead symmetrical and central and very small. And they started going, and for the first 10 minutes, 10 minutes, the water just sort of went shh, And then after about 10 minutes, in both the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere, after about 10 minutes, it would suddenly snap into a clockwise spin in the, our hemisphere, the southern hemisphere, and counterclockwise or anticlockwise in the northern hemisphere, after the experiment had been done very, very carefully. It is not as though you can roll off the airport, off the plane at the airport in Singapore, two degrees from the equator, find any random tub, fill it up and say, well, look at that, obviously it goes this way. Because there's, there's a second factor. The, it's called the Coriolis effect. And the Coriolis effect is not actually the Coriolis effect. It's actually conservation of angular momentum. Have I won any points with physicists here? Any physicists? Yeah, one. Okay, so, um, so the effect is weakest at the equator and strongest at the north and south poles. Now, who is that ex-Monty Python person who went around the world doing all sorts of stuff? Ma Palin? Yeah. And so he went to Kenya with the equator going through and he said, hey, look, they go on this side and it goes clockwise. They go on that side, it goes anti-clockwise. What they did was they get this big bowl of water and they go, twist! <laughs> <laughs> and the water starts going in the opposite direction. And they let the water out and say, look, look, it's going that way. And then, they, then when they go on the other side of the equator, it goes the other way. And anyway, the equator is not a single line, one millimetre thick. It's a sort of a fuzzy zone because the Earth is not spherical. It is made of blobby stuff and it oscillates. And so there is no such thing as the equator. There's sort of like a fuzzy zone. And they were saying, yep, right there is the equator. Over here, it goes clockwise. Over there, it goes anti-clockwise. No way. He got conned. It wasn't his fault. <laughs> Okay, um, Mealy, do you have a question up here? Hello, welcome. Hi, Dr. Carl. Uh, my question is, how reliable is 
a weather forecast from two weeks or a month away? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, it's a hugely complex system. You're dealing with five trillion tonnes of air. You're dealing with chaos so that a small input can amplify to a big output. You're dealing with many different inputs, such as cloud cover, wind, um, the variability of the sun. We're pretty good for a couple of days out, and the further you go away, like a week away, it gets more and more unreliable and it falls off fairly rapidly. It varies with different parts of the world. So if you've got a part of the world where you are having a fairly small country with fairly stable geology and there's strong trade winds, you can pretty well say, yep, it's going to be the same tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. But if you've got complex weather in a different part of the world where you don't have the weather confined by geological features, it gets much more complex. Is there anybody here from your Bureau of Meteorology who can answer that? I'm not an expert in this. Yes, yes, yes. Um, can we give that person a microphone so they could then tell me how wrong I was? <laughs> yeah, it's perfectly correct. It's the Lorentz effect. Uh, so very, very small deviations uh, grow and grow and grow. So up to about seven days, you're doing okay for weather forecast. But beyond that, you're in very dangerous water for somewhere like the UK. They're very, very complicated. So it's no surprise that some of the best weather forecasting centres are in the UK, of course, <laughs> uh, and Japan because of the complicated uh, type of weather systems that they get there. Because of what, sorry? The complicated weather systems, the, the geography. They've gone to a lot of trouble to try and work out what's happening in Japan. Yeah, yeah, it's very complicated. Ah, yeah. so, okay. So Check with him for further details. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you for your help. Um, Gemma, I think we have a question right up in the balcony. Um, yeah, my question is, what is your favourite element and why? <sighs> Plutonium. <laughs> Out. I was in a photocopy room um, and I was uh, at the university and there was a guy there with an American accent. I said, hi, I'm Carl. We started talking and, and he said, oh, I was at um, Albuquerque. Really? You know what they do in Albuquerque? Nuclear weapons. And I said, this is a thing to ask anybody who comes from Albuquerque, um, do you have a Q-class clearance? And that is a clearance to make nuclear weapons. And he said, well, funny you should ask, I actually do. And I said, really? And then I asked him the question that you asked me. I said, what is the favourite thing intellectually about it all? And he said, I love plutonium. I said, really? Why? And I said, if you look at elements... They can arrange themselves, the atoms can arrange themselves in different ways. So if you've got, say, diamond, you've got a little pyramid of carbon atoms. And if you've got metals, you can get like a cube, like, you know, with um, six sides. But then you can have the atoms just on the corners of the cube or in the middle of the cube or in the face, middle of the faces. There are six possible orientations of crystals in metals, and only plutonium has all six. And therefore, it's my favourite element. Uh, what's your, sec your second favourite equation and why? <laughs> oh, gee, I don't know. What's your favourite equation? Gee, you got me on that one. Um, that's, that's so good, it just takes everything. Um, I, I reckon Pythagoras was pretty deep with the A squared plus B squared equals C squared, or maybe the diameter of a circle, like uh, pi 
multiplied by the diameter gives you the circumference. <sighs> Sorry, got me there. Uh, we, any, any mathematicians got a favourite equation that deserves to come after Euler's equation? One there, can you see one there? Uh, no, look, we want to keep them happy. Look, I hope that you find your favourite equation. If you do find one that's as good as after Euler's, please let me know. Thank you. Okay, I think we have um, one more up in the top. Um, uh, Dr. Carl, uh, do you um, support the theory of chaos or the theory of order? Well, talking to the meteorologist, you've got to go for the chaos. And then there's this whole thing called entropy, which is kind of like unavailable energy or disorder. And it seems to be increasing. So on one hand, we're heading towards disorder and chaos. But on the other hand, we create little islands of happiness. So consider a newborn baby. Oh, they're so lovely and they're so small, so nice. And you could eat them and put Vegemite on them. Do you, Marmite? Does Marmite? Yeah, not the same. Okay. Um, and then if you consider that same baby one year later, that baby is gorgeous. They don't smell as much. Their poos are now a bit smelly, unfortunately, but they're still gorgeous. They smell really nice, but not quite as good as when they're young. And invisibly behind them is a pile of pooey nappies of disorder. So by creating a lot of disorder, you create a small amount of order. So I'm both in favour of chaos and, uh, not, uh, disorder, and order. Um, one, you've got to have both. I'm sorry, it's part of the equation. Okay, I think we've got time for two more. We've got one up with Mealy up at the top. Who founded Uranium. Don't know. It wouldn't have been Marie Curie. It was being... You, where did uranium come from? It was being dug up in the Congo, wasn't it? I do not know the history of uh, uranium. I have failed you. My good friend Wikipedia will be able to tell you the answer. <laughs> I have failed. Sorry? And... Oh, anybody got the answer to that? Uh, no, I haven't. No, no that's okay. Um, uh, we, you were talking about carbon scrubbing or, or, mm. or having those factories to, to, to clean the air. Um, I've always wondered why we can't have uh, one of those just stuck on the top of a coal-fired power station to stop all the coal or carbon particles coming out into the air. Why can't we do that? The two magic words, hidden externality. Suppose I'm running an abattoir and I can't use all the animal guts. Option one clean them up properly. Option two, throw them into the nearest river and everybody downstream then has to clean up that river, but I make bigger profits. The hidden externality is that I throw my waste and the rest of the world has to take care of it. There's a phrase called the tragedy of the commons, where we have a common territory and it goes back into medieval times where the villagers would stick together and form a group, a loose cohort and take care of each other when the Goths or Romans or whoever it was would come over the hill and to help themselves through bad times they'd have a common territory that if your cattle weren't doing well if you weren't getting any rain your grass had gone you could use that common territory for a while and the thing is that if you were bigger and tougher than everybody else and you had a big family of tough brutes you could then use the commons get your cattle bigger and then use your own grass later and so we need some degree of governance of self-governance and so the answer is simply it is leading to bigger profits 
to not clean up their own mess. So it's technologically possible, but not economically. It is economically possible because the costs of global warming are already turning out to be much greater than the profits made. So it all depends how big you draw your net. So we're seeing diseases appearing across the world. In, in Sydney, which is a remarkably clean city, I live not too far from the beach, and every now and then busloads of Asian tourists come to the beach to see something that 90% of people in Asia will never see in their entire life, which is a sun rising above the, from the horizon. Instead... They live in smog and the sun does not appear until it is two or three sun diameters above the horizon. And so they come to the beach and they see this red ball come out of the ocean. Something they'll never see. So even in Sydney with our clean air, two and a half thousand people die because we're burning stuff. Burning anything turns out to be bad. And it causes health problems. And even somewhere like Sydney, two and a half thousand. The figure for what was the, the figure for the deaths caused by Volkswagen in Germany because of the extra air pollution when they did the dirty trick on their cars that when the car knew that it was being tested on the testing machine, it would reduce the emissions. And the moment that it sensed that it was back on the road, it would increase the emissions by up to 40 times. And I forget whether it's seven or 70,000 extra deaths in Germany per year. Burning anything is bad. And the hidden externality is people. And so do those people who die in Sydney, do they get a check from the car company or the coal-burning power station saying, we're really sorry about your dead relative. Here's a cheque to cover the funeral costs. Hidden externality. They don't cast the net widely enough. And so that's why you should all go into politics and make the world a better place. <laughs> OK, I think we have one last question. The girl with the hand up there. Thank you. Hello. What's your favourite moment in science? Well, a lot of them. Uh, one is that, firstly that all of the gold in this ring was made inside a star when it exploded. And secondly, that your compost pile in the backyard puts out kilogram for kilogram as compared to the sun, 70,000 times more power than the sun. Mind you, it's very small and the sun is very big, but it's very lazy. I think we need a government inquiry into this. <laughs> the compost pile, weight for weight, volume for volume, puts out more power than the sun. And so does your body. But your body's not as efficient as a compost pile. Thank you. Excellent. Well, thank you for some fantastic questions. And one more big round of applause for Dr. Carl.